Chapter Thirty of the Morgesons. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julia Lenarden. The Morgesons by Elizabeth Stoddard. Chapter Thirty. I took a cold that night. Bellum was damp always, but its midnight damp was worse than any other. Mrs. Somers sent me medicine. Adelaide asked me, with an air of contemplation, what made me sick, and felt her own pulse. Anne criticized my nightgown ruffles, and accused me of wearing imitation lace. But nursing was her forte, and she stayed by me, annoyed me by frequent beating up of my pillow, and the bringing in of bowls of strange mixtures for me to swallow, which she persuaded the cook to make, and her father to taste. Before I left my room, Mrs. Somers came to see me. "'You are about well, I hear,' she said, in a cold voice. I felt as if I had been shamming sickness. "'I thought you were in remarkable health. Your frame is so large.' Adelaide was there, and answered for me. "'You are delicate. It must be because you do not take care of yourself. "'Wolf's Point to be avoided, perhaps.' I have walked to Wolf's Point for fifteen years, night and day, many times. "'Mr. Munster's man left this note for you,' her mother said, handing it to her. She read an invitation from Miss Munster, a cousin, to a small party. "'You will not be able to go,' Mrs. Somers remarked to me. "'You will go,' Adelaide said. "'It is an attention to you altogether.' She never replied to her mother, never asked her questions so that talking between them was a one-sided affair. "'Let us go out shopping, Adelaide. I want some lace to wear,' I begged. Mrs. Somers looked into her drawers, out of which Adelaide had thrust her finery, and found mine, but said nothing. "'We are going to a party, Anne, thanks to your messes and your nursing,' as I passed her in the hall. "'Where is your evening dress? Pinned in a napkin, like my talent.' "'Old cousin Munster, the pirate, who made his money in the opium trade, has good things in his house. "'I suppose,' with a coquettish air, "'that you will see Ned Munster. "'He would walk to the door with me to-day. "'He wishes me out, I know.' "'We consumed that evening in talking of dress. "'Adelaide showed me her Campbell's hair scarves, which Desmond had brought, and her dresses. "'Anne tried them all on, walking up and down.' and standing tiptoe before the glass, while I trimmed a handkerchief for the lace I had purchased. I unfolded my dress after they were gone, with a dubious mind. It was a heavy white silk, with a blue satin stripe. It might be too old-fashioned, for it belonged to mother, who would never wear it. The sleeves were puffed with bands of blue velvet, and the waist was covered with a birthday of the same. It must do, however, for I had no other. We were to go at nine. Adelaide came to my room dressed, and with her hair arranged exactly like mine. She looked well, in spite of her mongolic face. "'Pa wants to see us in his room. He has gone to bed.' "'Wait a moment,' I begged. I took my hair down, unbraided it, brushed it out of curl as much as I could, twisted it into a loose mass, through which I stuck pins enough to hold it, bound a narrow fillet of red velvet round my head, and ran after her. 
"'That is much better,' she said. "'You are entirely changed.' Desmond was there, in his usual careless dress, hanging over the footboard of the bed, and Anne was huddled on the outside. Mrs. Somers was reading. "'Pa,' said Anne, "'just think of old Hepburn's giving her a pair of lovely earrings.' "'Did she? Where are they?' asked Mrs. Somers. "'I am not surprised,' said Mr. Somers. "'Mrs. Hepburn knows where to bestow. Why not wear them?' "'I'll get them,' said Anne. Mr. Somers continued his compliments. He thought there was a pleasant contrast between Adelaide and myself, referred to Diana, mentioned that my hair was remarkably thick, and proceeded with a dissertation on the growth and decay of the hair when she returned with the earrings. "'It is too dark here,' she said. Desmond, who had remained silent, took the candle, which Mrs. Somers was reading by, and held it for Anne, close to my face. The operation was over, but the candle was not taken away till Mrs. Somers asked for it sharply. "'I dare say,' murmured Mr. Somers, who was growing drowsy, "'that Mrs. Hepburn wore them some night, when she went to John Munster's forty years ago, and now you wear them to the sun's. How things come round!' The Munster's man opened the door for us. The rooms were full. "'Very glad!' said Mr., Mrs., and Miss Munster, and amid a loud buzz we fell back into obscurity. Adelaide joined a group, who were talking at the top of their voices with most hilarious countenances. "'They pretend to have a Murillo here. Let us go and find it,' said Ben. It was a small room. While we looked at a dark-haired, handsome woman, standing on brown clouds, with hands so fat that every finger stood apart, Miss Munster brought up a young gentleman with a Munster cast of countenance. "'My brother begs an introduction, Miss Morganson.' Ben retired, and Mr. Munster began to talk volubly, with wandering eyes, repeating words he was in danger of forgetting. No remarks were required from me. At the proper moment he asked me to make the tour of the rooms, and offered his arm. As we were crossing the hall I saw Desmond, hat in hand, and in faultless evening dress, bowing to Miss Munster. "'Your cousin Desmond, and mine, is a fine-looking man, is he not? Let us speak to him.' I drew back. "'I'll not interrupt his devoir,' he bowed submissively. "'My cousin Desmond,' I thought, "'let me examine this beauty.' He was handsomer than Ben, his complexion darker, and his hair black. There was a flush across his cheekbones, as if he had once blushed, but the blush had settled. The colour of his eyes I could not determine. As if to resolve my doubt, he came toward us. They were a deep violet, and the lids were fringed with long black lashes. I speculated on something animal in those eyes. He stood beside me, and twisted his heavy moustache. "'What a pretty boudoir this is,' I said backing into a little room behind us. "'Ned,' he said abruptly, "'you must resign, Miss Morganson. "'I am here to see her.' "'Of course,' Ned answered. "'I relinquish.' Before a word was spoken between us, Mrs. Munster touched Desmond on the shoulder, and told him that he must come with her to be introduced to Count Montholon. "'Bring him here, please.' "'Tyrant,' 
she answered playfully. "'The Count shall come.' "'He brought a chair. "'Take this. You are pale. You have been ill.' "'Bringing another, he seated himself before me "'and fanned himself with his hat. "'Mrs. Bunster came back with the Count, an elderly man, "'and Desmond rose to meet him, "'keeping his hand on the back of his chair. "'They spoke French.' The freedom of their conversation precluded the idea of my understanding of it. The Count made a remark about me. Desmond replied, glancing at me, and both pulled their moustaches. The Count was called away soon, and Desmond resumed his chair. "'I understood you,' I said. "'The deuce you did!' He placed his hat over a vase of flowers, which, tipping over, he leisurely righted, and bending toward me said, "'It was in battle.' "'Yes, and women like you, pure, with no vice of blood, "'sometimes are tempted, struggle, and suffer.' "'His words, still more his voice, made me wince. "'Even drawn battles bring their scars,' I replied. "'Convince me beyond all doubt that a woman can reason with her impulses, "'or even fathom them, and I will be in your debt.' "'Maybe, but Ben is coming.' He looked at me strangely. "'You must find this very dull, Cassandra,' said Ben, joining us. "'Cassandra,' said Desmond, "'are you bored?' The accent with which he spoke my name set my pulses striking like a clock. I got up mechanically, as Ben directed. "'They are going to supper. There's game. Des, Munster told me to take the northeast corner of the table.' "'I shall take the southwest, then,' he replied, nodding to a tall gentleman who passed with Adelaide. When we left him, he was observing a carved oak chair, in occult sympathy, probably, with a grain of the wood. Nature strikes us with her phenomena at times when other resources are not at hand. We were compelled to wait at the door of the supper-room. The jam was so great. "'What fairy story do you like best?' asked Ben. "'I know what you like. Well, Bluebeard, you have an affinity with Sister Anne in the tower. Do you think I see nothing but the sun which makes a dust and the grass which looks green? I believe you like Bluebeard, too.' That was a great joke, at which we both laughed. When I saw Desmond again, he was surrounded by men, the French Count among them, drinking champagne. He held a bottle and was talking fast. The others were laughing. His listless, morose expression had disappeared. In the place of a brutal-tempered, selfish, bored man, I saw a brilliant, jovial gentleman. Which was the real man? "'Finish your jelly,' said Ben. "'I prefer looking at your brother. Leave my brother alone. You see nothing but the sun which makes a dust and the grass which looks green.' Miss Munster hoped I was cared for. How gay Desmond was! She had not seen such a look in his face in a long time, and how strongly he was marked with the family traits. "'How am I marked, May?' asked Ben. "'Oh, we know worse eccentricities than you are. What are you up to now? You are not as frank as Desmond.' He laughed as he looked at me, and then Adelaide called to us that it was time to leave. We were among the last.' The carriage was waiting. We made our bows to Mrs. Munster, who complained of not having seen more of us. 
"'You were a favourite of Mrs. Hepburn's, Miss Morgson, I am told. "'She is a remarkable woman, has great powers.' "'I mentioned my one interview with her.' "'Guests were going upstairs with smiles, "'and coming down without, released from their company manners. "'We rode home in silence, except that Adelaide yawned fearfully, "'and then we toiled up the long stairs, separating with a tired, "'Good night!' I extinguished my candle by dropping my shawl upon it, and groped in vain for matches over the tops of table and shelf. "'To bed in the dark, then,' I said, pulling off my gloves and the band from my head, for I felt a tightness in it, and pulled out the hairpins. But a desire to look in the glass overcame me. I felt unacquainted with myself, and must see what my aspect indicated just then. I crept downstairs to the dining-room, passed my hands over the sideboard, the mantel-shelf, and took the round of the dinner-table, but found nothing to light my candle with. "'The fire may not be out in the parlour,' I thought. "'It can be lighted there.' I ran against the hat-stand in the hall, knocking a cane down, which fell with a loud noise. The parlour-door was ajar, the fire was not out, and Desmond was before it, watching its decay. "'What is it?' he asked. "'The candle,' I stammered, confused with the necessity of staying to have it lighted, and the propriety of retreating in the dark. "'Shall I light it?' I stepped a little further inside the door and gave it to him. He grew warm with thrusting it between the bars of the grate, and I grew chilly. Shivering, and with chattering teeth, I made out to say, "'A piece of paper would do it.' Raising his head hastily, it came crash against the edge of the marble shelf. Involuntarily I shut the door and leaned against it, to wait for the effect of the blow, but feeling a pressure against the outside, I yielded to it and moved aside. Mrs. Somers entered, with a candle flaring in one hand, and holding with the other her dressing-gown across her bosom. "'What are you doing here?' she asked sharply, but in a whisper her eyes blazing like a panther's. "'Doing?' I replied. "'Stay and see.' She swept along, and I followed, bringing up close to Desmond, who had his hand round his head, and was very pale, either from the effect of the blow or some other cause. Even the flush across his cheeks had faded. She looked at him sharply. He moved his hands from his head, and met her eyes. "'I am not drunk, you see.' he said in a low voice. She made an insulting gesture toward me, which meant, "'Is this an adventure of yours?' The blaze in her eyes kindled a more furious one in his. He stepped forward with a threatening motion. Anger raged through me, like a fierce rain that strikes flat a violent sea. I laid my hand on her arm, which he snapped like a wolf, but I spoke calmly. "'You tender, true-hearted creature,' full of womanly impulses, allow me to light my candle by yours. I picked it from the hearth, lighted it, and held it close to her face, laughing, though I never felt less merry. But I had restrained him. He took the candle away gently. "'Leave the room,' he said to her. She beckoned me to go. "'No, you shall go.' They made a simultaneous movement with their hands, he to insist, she to deprecate. 
and I again observed how exactly alike they were. "'Desmond,' I implored, "'pray allow me to go.' A deep flush suffused his face. He bowed, threw wide the door, and followed me to the foot of the stairs. I reached my hand for the candle, for he retained both. "'You pardon first. "'For what?' For much, oh, for much. What story my face told, I could not have told him. He kissed my hand and turned away. At the top of the stairs I looked down. He was there with an upturned face, watching me. Whether he went back to confer with his mother, I never knew. If he did, the expression which he wore then must have troubled her. I went to bed, wondering over the mischief that a candle could do. After I had extinguished it, its wick glowed in the dark like a one-eyed demon. End of chapter 30